And you're listening. And you're listening. You're listening to Salmon. 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 To Salmon Fest. Thank you for joining. We're your hosts, Dave. And Satchel. And you're listening to Salmon Fest Radio. And the spirit of Salmon Fest Radio is really to celebrate and keep salmon in our hearts and minds. So we took a pause this summer because everyone's out there doing that naturally. It's the time we like saturate ourselves in salmon. And now as things are settling down, we thought we'd bring the podcast back. It's a great time to uh, take a breath here after an intense summer season. And I think we've got a great show that you're going to enjoy today. And you can have time to sit back and enjoy. And this is a series that is produced by Cook Inlet Keeper, a nonprofit working towards protecting the Cook Inlet watershed and the life it sustains and really focuses in on salmon habitat. And you can make sure you stay up to date with all future episodes and Salmon Festive Radio clips and reels and behind the scenes by following Inlet Keeper on their socials. Yeah, it's a sound and light extravaganza, actually. Yes. So today we are going to dive back to some recordings we did prior to the crazy summer days. We're going to talk to a salmon champion who has dedicated his entire life to protecting the salmon landscape of his home in Cordova, Alaska. And that is Dune Lankard, an Alaska native living in Eak lands and has lived in relationship with salmon all his life and through that lens committed himself to protecting not only sort of the freshwater habitat that the salmon rely on but now moving into another phase of his life where he's thinking about the saltwater habitat and thinking about the health of the ocean and has really propelling the industry of kelp farming forward with this holistic view of ocean health and how that affects the systems that we all rely on. His enthusiasm and his commitment are contagious, and um, I think you'll maybe pick up on that during the interview. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to pair him with another really contagious, high-energy artist that has graced the Salmon Fest stages. They are a really wonderful group that you got to interview, Dave. Yeah, that was one of my favorite bands and one of my most fun interviews with the low-down brass band, Chicago's own, and they're real crowd pleasers. And they're also paying attention. As they travel around Alaska, they're paying attention, and I think that comes across in our interview with them. Well, before we begin, we should uh, recognize where we are and what we're doing here. We're recording from the uh, Palatial Studios here at the Cook Inlet Keeper building in uh, Homer, Alaska, in the traditional territories of the Sukpiak people and the Denina people on beautiful Kachemak Bay. And we want to recognize those folks that have been here for eons, uh, living here and helping care for this landscape that we all value so much today. Yep. We just want to express our respect and our gratitude and appreciation for sort of holding holding down this value of nurturing the place that we live and sharing it with all of us so that we can we can be good stewards of this land and continue to live here for the next millennia. Fire aim ready, Satchel. What should we start with? How about some music from the Lowdown Brass Band? Man, y'all sound like angels out there. Show your love for Mr. Matthew Davis on the trombone. Come on. He's a bad man. Come on. 
Your feelings already maxed. Ain't nothing to be enough for sinners of satisfaction. This is the map. Look at my flaws when I'm rapping. Mad, but I'm laughing. My goals, they keep snapping. Asking the Lord something I promised to keep the gift. Told me to let him have it. I told him I wouldn't miss that. That's the problem. I'm properly seeing better. The point is to give him hell. The point of writing this letter. So if I worry, there's something to keep me hungry. It's scary to even wonder what dreams are going to bury you. There ain't a number, so say it's a sacred number. Making every moment matter, no matter how they bury. Not so ordinary, just a never everything. And if I rule the world, I would think the whole is steady. Look at everything. Tell her, yeah, I tell her every day. The temperature can bury, but there ain't another way I'm like. Critical flavor to keep your liquor to the job. Catching some more and all when I'm with on my way. Deliver with signs, see the spirit, no mind games. Even on wrong songs, you hear it, yo, please. This how every day go. You can never pay for it with a mind, the money, a peso. To y'all, hot on my brain, scars and tatted the frame. Nah, not a dilemma, y'all, but the names are diamond in the rough. Go and start for the boulevard cars. I was here, they made me humble today. Say the best, best for last. Ask to give it my all fast to run up. Put the crown in the bag and the stash. Just let me get some final love on my behalf. We can pull up on the half if you want gas. Party crash in the house, got a fucking mad max like a person's last chance for the dividend. What a great introduction to this terrific band, and it was my pleasure to interview the band members backstage at the Salmon Fest radio tent during the summer of 2021. And so here's that interview recorded uh, with our Salmon Fest radio folks and our support team from KBBI. I'm joined here by guests from the Lowdown Brass Band. Uh, gentlemen, would you just take a minute and introduce yourselves? Uh, my name's Anthony Billy Campivore, and I'm the MC. Uh, my name is Shane Jonas, and I'm the lead singer and trumpet player. And this is not your first uh, Alaska adventure, is it? It is not. It's our third time for the band being up here. This is actually our second time at Salmon Fest. Yeah, I was here for that, and you uh, you set some uh, set a high bar for the rest of Salmon Fest for that year and this. Oh, great! And, Thank and you. we've just finished up your set here on the brand new river stage and the crowd was very enthusiastic what is it what's the magic that makes that happen because i bet you see that a lot well the magic i mean it's just like i mean me and him have a synergy together but then the band also has its own synergy and we got to we get to like kind of just kind of vibe within that and then that's kind of the best way it happens 
Can you talk about that a little bit more? Because I was wondering, you got a band of brass. You've got all that breath coming out and all of that coordination. So uh, two trumpets, two trombones, a sousaphone, drums, and and vocal apparatus there. Yeah. That's a lot of com complexity yeah. and a lot of things to bring together in the way that you're able to project that message in that sound. How does that happen? It, it, uh, it is a beautiful process. There are a lot of alpha males in the group. And so, you know, we, we've just come to work together really well. And uh, basically, like he was saying, it kind of just comes off of an idea, uh, you know, whatever we're feeling at that moment, whether or not we want to touch on something that's going on in society. We want to just uh, have it, let everybody have a good time. And then it kind of trickles down from there. Sometimes different guys in the band might bring in something instrumental, and then we'll just add our lyrics to it. Uh, but lately, it's kind of been starting from the lyric side first, and then becoming a song afterwards so the idea drives what happens next in Absolutely. terms of that and then how does the actual arrangement happen because you're arranging for all of those instruments sure well we've gone through different processes throughout the years like uh, back in the day we used to actually write out all the music and guys would read it when we first played it and then they'd memorize it but lately we've been doing it more so just when we get together from rote so like we might bring in an entire song that we've written out with electronic versions of horns, that kind of thing, and then everybody learns the parts that we've uh, written, and uh, you know, commits it to memory over time. Were were most of you coming up through band or for formal education around music, or where did where does that happen? Well, I mean, pretty much everybody went to college for music at some point. Like I'm the only one that's kind of self-trained. I mean, he's also self-trained. He grew up in the church, Shane, and then Billa, myself. I grew up kind of just making music with my friends, making hip hop making all types of stuff. So, I mean, there's a lot of classically trained cats in the band, so it's like, I mean, you're dealing with a lot of musicality there. So we definitely have a high level of musical intelligence going on there. You know, we may produce something on the computer, and then, like I said, take it back to the guys. Instead of them reading it off a of paper, now they're just using their ear, and it's kind of created a really interesting sound for us. There's a different vibe when you're reading music off of a paper versus when you, like, soak it into your soul and your spirit. A different vibe comes out on stage, and we've, we've been noticing that a lot lately. Yeah, yeah I, was, I was thinking about the root sources of that music, that music that I associate with New Orleans, and second line the and street the, music the yeah. street music and that tradition of a rebirth and new birth and Olympia brass band and our, our friends with soul rebels and things that come from that tradition in town there that has spread out how did that reach Chicago well I mean Chicago is like a super band city and like you got bands like Chicago you got a bunch of you got Quincy Jones that came from Chicago Earth Wind and Fire Earth Wind and Fire I mean I mean a bunch of people came from Chicago and then basically what we do is we take that influence from the rebirths and the dirty dozens, which we are heavily influenced by as, as far as, the, as what the root of Lowdown Brass Band is. And then as we evolved and found our own identity, it's like we took that and then made it our own. You know, and like, I feel like that's the best way an artist can do itself. It's like you have to, you have to start with something as, that is your example. And then once you find that example and you really, you, you journey down that road, then you like, you have to make that your own and then find your own way within that. To me, that's really clear, that your sound is unique to you yeah. and that is is different but related to that and that, that tradition flows through you. But can you talk a little bit more about 
this evolution of Lowdown sound? Absolutely. I mean, Bill had touched on it, but we owe so much to those uh, brass band giants from New Orleans. I mean, to be honest, all of American pop music does. It really all comes from Congo Square way back in the day. And, you know, like Billa said, we, as you can see, we're an all-horn band. And when you're a horn player, you play in all kinds of bands because bands just want to tack on horns because everybody loves horns. So it doesn't matter if you're a blues band, if you're a singer-songwriter, if you're a funk band, if you're a hip-hop band. Everybody wants horns. So we have so many different genres that the guys on stage have been a part of. Reggae, dance hall, we're very influenced by all that. And it just comes out in our music and our writing because everybody's been involved in so much music in Chicago, all kinds of different styles. Latin, yeah. uh, we have somebody who's in a cumbia band. I, yeah. I play in a Latin band as well in Chicago. We just have so many influence from all the genres. Yeah. Well, it's funny. We haven't even talked about Buddy Guy. We haven't even talked about <laughs> blues. Oh, yeah. The Chicago blues community will, will never go away. It's very thick. It's very deep. And Buddy Guy, he opened up a new spot. He's down on the South Loop called Buddy Guy's. And it's like a staple for blues musicians. Every That's night. awesome. But you're from you're from New York, aren't yeah, you? Yeah. Well, I was born in New York, and then I moved to Chicago. So my my Harlem influence has a lot of like just poetry, spoken word, jazz. And then that's why I kind of fit in the band so much because it's like everything comes from jazz for me as far as like what I grew up on. You know what I mean? I might not have like pursued uh, the jazz lane, but. I'm all I'm always influenced by it because I mean I have Langston Hughes, you know what I mean? I'm I'm from Harlem, so everything in Harlem is running through me. So like what we're saying is we keep evolving and when we keep finding ways to like make it our own. It, before when we came here it was more of a second line thing. Right. You know what I mean? We had a lot of songs. We had songs like Get It In, Big Shirley, and these are real heavy New Orleans second line tunes. But like as we found our identity, we found how to still have that in it, but also like how to be contemporary at the same time. That's what sticks out to me is how you've evolved in the two years since we've seen you here. And that happened over the pandemic. <laughs> how did the pandemic affect uh, how you wor worked together, wrote together, and evolved? Well, you know, just like everybody, it was weird for us. You know, everybody went to isolation. We weren't the only ones. What, for us, it was a little bit strange because we've been traveling some of us have been traveling nearly our whole lives doing music you know so it was the first time we all really stopped and slowed down at the beginning we were you know kind of feeling down he and i are, are really good friends outside of music as well and it comes out on stage and so we would have conversations each day you know check check on each other make see how you're doing and then we finally just decided like you know we can't be sitting around feeling sorry for ourselves so we went to the music and we we did this thing called the Lowdown Mini Reels series. And starting back in February, we wrote a new song and filmed a new video every two weeks from February to June. So we did 10 of them and they're, they're amazing. Please go online and check them out on YouTube. They're on great places throughout Chicago, kind of feature the city. And you know, that deadline of every two weeks, it doesn't seem like it's that short, but it's really short when you're talking about writing a brand new song for seven guys filming a brand new video, uh, and that deadline really propelled us forward, kind of pushed us to work a little bit harder. And that got you through that period and kept your name out and kept your fans interested? And, yeah, yeah. and did you, what was the growth, the interior band growth like during that? When you have to produce a product every two weeks, so regardless if we wanted to or not, it's like if we don't come back on our word and don't like live up to it, then we're just going to look like... I don't know what we look Ooh. like in somebody else's eyes, but I know what I would, we would look like in my eyes, and I didn't want to look like that. So it just kind of propelled us forward, and it made us grow as human beings. 
And that's kind of what propels the music forward, is us growing as human beings to individually and collectively. I actually wrote a piece on about the, the transformative power of art mm. and how art can just transform you by you overcoming all the obstacles it takes to, to really complete something that's hard. You have to go from beginning to end with an idea, and then when you get to the end, you do a reflective thing, and then you realize like how far you've come, and then that's where you like realize the growth that you've actually had. What does it mean to be free? Matter of fact, what it mean to be killing? My whole life dedicated to higher means. Graduation, no cap, gal, no places. Do whatever so me and example, what can happen now? PC, P, good out in a P, P. As long as I can sleep at night, my dreams will be my ATV. Resolving all of our problems, can't do it all in a day. Can't be dependent on nothing, hoping it all goes away. To the day I'm ghost, what's this thing? We'll say bye bye to those when I got the features. Got achievements and the final feet. Ghost Town Highway, robbery, I can read them. Don't believe them, no, no self reach just need to see. Can we make it out? Not victimize and not forget who we supposed to be. I got some loud and a decent truth be told. I'm gonna need that. Of course, we can stick to the protocol and take down those from the feedback. Huh, first try, I'm gonna use that. So first, do I do I use that? Might die being a patient, burning in the base. we resurrect on Easter just like. Let's set it up, let's set it up, let's set it up, let's set it up, let's set it up. Yeah, yeah. Phenomenal, hurtful, some so good it's worth though. This so tough, some gas is king. Actually, it ain't worth though, man. Please don't be insulted by my degree. There's many evenings I'm heated, got many reasons to be. Sometimes we're shooting the fire, spirit, two drinks in the mix. Try not to make it a habit, hang up, I'm calling it quits. This ain't supposed to real effect. Real or fake is different to a non-believer Pay the reef but not properly Skate to die, die, cock to me Freedom, don't keep them No souls are meant to be set free But tied down in a brainstorm When the rain's gone, but ain't no one seen this Why? Don't reason We're fools when it comes to achievement Don't doubt what I'm saying like first boy You gotta say it out loud and believe it huh. What do I know? Leave her, it's up But still won't leave her till I find your placement In a matrix, resurrect on Easter to love Let's set it up, let's set it up Let's set it up, let's set it up Let's set it up Let's set it up, let's set it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trombone. 
right next to him, he's a bad, bad motherfucker, y'all. His name is Matthew Davis on trombone. Right here next to me on trumpet, giving you that mountain laser trumpet sound. His name is Samuel Johnson. Back there on the drums, y'all. Keeping y'all moving and your ass is shaking all day long. That's John Barber, show him your love. And on the rhyme, on the poetry, on the inspiration, on the love from Harlem, New York, put your hands together for Anthony Billicamp Rivora. Let me give my brother a same introduction from Crumb, Texas, on the vocals. Can we give it up for Shane Jonah? Thank you guys so much. And now what we all been waiting for, the sexiest motherfucker in Nintendo Chick right here. Ladies love LL, the tuba titan. Let's Lloyd sail! Come on! Brass Band, you're listening to Salmon Fest Radio. Let's hit the pause button for just a moment and go back into our interview with the Lowdown Brass Band at Salmon Fest 2021. If you've missed the first part of this or would like to go back and hear it again, you can always do that by going wherever you find your podcast or at salmonfestradio.org. <laughs> That's great. Was it really tough for you to make a decision when the folks from Salmon Fest call you and said, would you come back to Salmon Fest? I, I imagine that was... A, it's a, never, it's never, that's never a hard decision. We always want to come back. Why is that? I mean, honestly, for me, I mean, I haven't been to Alaska as many times as Shane has, but this is my third time. And, like, I, I just, I really appreciate the sincerity from everybody and, like, the honesty and the the... I mean, I hate to use this word, but just nice. Everybody's so loving and, like, caring and giving. I mean, it's I true. guess that comes from having to fend for yourself up here. And then you look out for your fellow man. But, like, I mean, from Talkeetna, even to Anchorage, to Nanilchik, uh, Gary at the Clam Gulch. I mean, yeah, Gary. I can't. 
I can't uh, express how gr uh, grateful that I am and we are for just the love that we receive from around here. And I would add on to what he was saying. People here love to dance. <laughs> and as you can see, we're a dance band. Like everything we do revolves around getting your body moving. And sometimes the lower 48 people got a little bit more... Uh, you know, uh, they don't want to have their friends see them do something goofy or whatever. But up here, everybody just lets loose and uh, gets rid of their inhibitions, and we will always come back. Yeah. Al yeah, Alaska doesn't grow on you. It just makes you unfit to live anywhere else. That's hilarious. And I think there's something to that, but uh, it's such a great place. Have you got to? Have you had opportunities to get outdoors and experience the? We've gotten luck. We've been lucky a couple times. The first time we came to Alaska, we played something. We played in Cordova at a festival called the Salmon Jam. And it was amazing, you know, as you guys know, you can only get there by plane or boat. And, you know, it was an experience for us. And uh, the first night we were there, we met a couple fishermen who had just got done fishing for the season. And we met them in the bar and they took us out on their boat the next day. And we actually filmed a music video on the boat for Ghost Town, the, the, the very last song that we played mm -hmm. on the set. So we're on a boat, the Copper River there. And uh, I got to meet with... Um, uh, Dune? With Dune, who is, is a big conservationist there in Cordova, and got to spend a day with them, played basketball with them, great guy, and talked, he, you know, talked a lot about the health and the habitat for salmon, and how he, one of the reasons he wanted to meet us, just so we can go around and tell people about how uh, sacred the, the circle of life is up here, and how important it is for the salmon population. And That's it's awesome. awesome, yeah. So we got lucky, and a couple guys got to go up in a plane in Talkeetna yesterday. You got to stay longer so you get do more stuff oh, like I that. I know, man. <laughs> That was great, and I don't know if you've been listening from the beginning, but we have this sweet little nugget where Lowdown Brass Band just introduced our salmon champion for us. We're actually going to highlight Dune Lankard next as our salmon champion, who uh, these guys just got to hang out with in Cordova in a completely different context, but um, we wanted to share some of Dune's wisdom with our listeners as well. What should our listeners know about Dune before we launch? Dune is an incredibly compassionate and enthusiastic and energized spirit and he's just committed himself to bringing community together and organizing and protecting the places that sustain his people and the people of Alaska and the salmon systems that we rely on. Dune has a huge resume. He's been given so many awards. He has started so many initiatives and nonprofits. He's served on so many boards and committees. He's, like I said, he's dedicated. This is his calling, and it's really inspiring to be around. And Kira and I got to sit down with him at the Alaska Just Transition Summit in spring 2022, where he was a keynote speaker and really has a vision for Alaska that brings communities together to become more self-reliant, but also empowered and aligned with the natural systems. He's a huge proponent of really reimagining what economies looks like here and imagining economies that are regenerative and specifically how the kelp industry can both feed our communities, literally feed them and bolster the economic strength and livelihoods of our communities while healing the ocean and the salmon systems and all the aquatic systems that depend on a healthy, healthy ocean. 
My name is Dune Lankard. I'm an EAC Athabascan native from the Copper River Delta in Prince William Sound. And I grew up with a fishing family. I remember seeing the first modern day sailboat and modern day kayak team come into Prince William Sound. And I remember I was a young pup. I was probably 10, 12 years old, but I, I realized back then, witnessing that, that we had been discovered again. And that that was the beginning of the end as we knew it, because they didn't have fish blood on their deck. You know, the boat was immaculate. Uh, and I couldn't imagine being on a boat that wasn't a working boat. And, and there was more and more tourism boats and vessels coming in. And I knew that at some point that that would start impacting our fishing way of life. And then as I got a little bit older, I remember the discussions about the Prudhoe Bay uh, Trans-Alaska Pipeline and that they had chosen Valdez as being the, the terminus for that pipeline. And so we felt that we wanted to do everything we could to stop it, but we didn't know how. And I remember when it came down to a 50-50 tie in the Senate, Vice President Spiro Agnew was the deciding vote. And I remember when Nixon signed it into law, he said, there's not gonna be any problems up there, is there boys? They said, no, a spill of any magnitude would only happen in once in every 430 some years. Well, it happened in the 13th year of operation. So we knew in our hearts and our minds that it was inevitable that an oil spill would happen in our backyard and forever impact our fishing way of life. It was the ocean that had meant everything for me and provided for me and my family. So to me, when the spill happened, that was the day the ocean died but something inside of me came to life. And I felt like it was almost like anxiety, but it was a churning. It was like, okay, I need to go to work. And I, I sat down with my environmental buddies and I said, you know, I'll, I'll do this work, but here's the deal, you can't turn off the mic. There's a lot more to this than just stopping Exxon or, or figuring out how we're gonna, you know, get settlements from Exxon because a lot of people at that time had put their hand out and wanted big settlements and everybody wanted to become spillionaires. And I realized that I wasn't in it for the money. I wanted to see the cleanup happen and I wanted to figure out how we were gonna save the trees. Because at the same time that the spill had happened, the native corporation decided to clear cut a million acres in the parallel path of the Exxon Valdez oil spill. So I sat down with my family and friends and I said, listen, we do not want to end up like parts of Canada, Washington, Oregon, and California. If we allow the clear cutting to happen, then we're going to kill two industries. We're going to kill the timber industry at the same time we kill the salmon industry. And because <clears throat> I always figured that as long as we could save as much of the wild salmon habitat as we possibly could, the salmon would always have a home to come back to. And so here we are 33 years later, 
the silver lining to having the nation's worst oil spill at the time was we were able to get a $900 million out-of-court settlement from Exxon to create a restoration fund to buy the timber harvesting rights from the native corporations, therefore protecting 765,000 acres of trees and 150,000 acres they could never get to. And so native peoples were paid to preserve their subsistence and fish and way of life. And so when I think about now with what we're trying to do on the Copper River Delta, uh, in the last year and a half, we were able to finally convince the Exxon Valley Soil Spill Trustee Council to extend the political restoration boundary that ended on the west side of the copper to extend that boundary all the way down to Cape Suckling that includes the entire Copper River Delta. And it's our goal is to uh, uh, purchase the remaining 11,900 acres of the Bering River coal field. We've already purchased 62,000 acres in 2016, uh, and we protected 85%. The last 15%, if we're able to protect that, we'll end up preserving 3 million acres of lower Copper River watershed for all time. So there'll already be no more clear cutting, no more strip mining, no more oil and gas drilling, no roads across the Delta, and we have a chance to preserve that habitat and, and have a home for the salmon to come home to. Can you talk about the salmon system of the Copper River Delta? Sure, the, the Copper River uh, Delta fans out to a 50 mile wide delta, which is one of the last wild roadless, wild salmon watersheds on the planet. And it goes 300 miles all the way up into Glen Allen. And it's just some of the siltiest glacial fed rivers tallest glacier topped mountain caps in the world. When you get out on the Copper River, you start remembering things you never knew. Uh, it's one of those places that upriver we have buffalo, uh, we have caribou, downriver we have moose and deer. The wolf pack on the Copper River is one of the only three or four wolf packs in Alaska that makes a living on the Copper River salmon and or makes a living off a of salmon period. And it, it's it's just a, as wild as can be. Every single trip is different because of the weather. Because when you go upriver, it could be like 70 degrees. It could be hotter than hell. And it gets so hot that your feet, you get blisters running on the sand. And so when you, you start upriver, you can get sunburned. And then the next uh, leg down, you come into some of the biggest sandbars like the Sahara on the copper. And so literally, if the wind shifts, which it usually does between 12 and one o'clock every day and starts blowing upriver, uh, you can get sandblasted. So it'll take that layer of burnt skin that you've had from the sunburns you got. And then when that cleanses you, then the next leg of the trip, you come through some of the tallest coastal glacier capped mountains. And so you have to wear layers and you get freezer burn if you're not careful. So you gotta like, you know, get warm quickly. And then the last leg, the last 25 miles, you're coming into the Copper River Delta where it gets more rain than I think anywhere on the planet except the north side of Hawaii. And so you're gonna get uh, cleansed by the time you get to the other end. And so you're not gonna be the same person. Plus you're gonna see sites that you don't, you've never seen before, humans have never seen. And I would imagine that not only the EACs, but all of the 
skippers or the pilots or railroad conductors, whatever they call them, who ran that copper for those 30 years, uh, to get that copper ore out of Kennecott must have been blissed out every single day to see what they did. You know, I would imagine that that's true. It sounds like a very humbling place, both in the beauty and the intensity of it all. Yeah, there could be as many as 25,000 salmon going underneath you daily upriver. And the salmon, they do an interesting thing. You know, when they come back from their world tour, some of the species, the pinks and chums, are two-year salmon, the reds and the silvers are four-year salmon, four- or five-year salmon, and then the kings are seven to eight years. When they come back, they mill around for a couple of weeks, and while they're milling around, they're reversing their piping system so they can filter uh, silt instead of food because that uh, while they're on their world tour, they're filtering food everywhere they go. But when they come back to do the wild thing and spawn and die, then they reverse their piping system so they can actually uh, filter the silt so they won't get clogged down on their way up river because they got to go in eight, 10, 12 knot currents depending on the height of the river. And with the glaciers melting at unprecedented rates, we have not only higher, uh, faster currents, but higher water, therefore more erosion and more silt coming down. So it, it's, it's just a matter of time that when those glaciers melt, there will be no more salmon. You've done extensive work protecting that freshwater habitat of salmon. And now you're working on a project that's, that's looking at the ocean, the world tour time for the salmon. Can you talk about the project that you're working on with kelp and ocean health and how that affects salmon? Sure. Four or five years ago, we had only 44,000 sockeye return to the Copper River, which was devastating. Because on a normal run, if normal is still a word, on a normal year we would have a million to a million and a half, sometimes two million sockeyes come home to the Copper River. Well, five years ago, we only had 44,000. The following year, only 85,000 fish found their way home. The following year, the ocean heated up to 76 degrees, up to three weeks, 20 feet below the surface. And so literally millions of krill that the salmon feed on, millions of mussels that couldn't migrate quick enough, uh, wild kelp forests, salmon and birds died because they didn't have the fresh water and there was a lot of streams that just didn't have the water so they could go upriver to spawn and die. So they had to spawn in the intertidal zone, which is uh, kind of a mixed bag because uh, if you spawn in the intertidal zone where the currents can come in and wash out those eggs in the fall monsoon winds and storms, the mortality rate of the salmon is gonna skyrocket. Then the following year, uh, was a little better. We had 850,000 come home uh, salmon. And then the following year after that, we had 500,000. Uh, this year is still hard to tell. And so it's one of those industries that, you know, could disappear right before our eyes. And, and so I felt like I had to shift gears because I had to think about the health of the ocean and, and how it's going to take care of my little girl, Ananda who's 12 now. And like, if I wanted to have anything for her to learn about the ocean or do in the ocean, I had to figure out how to do my part to save the ocean. So uh, being a future fish fellow and an Ashoka fellow, I had a, a dear friend, Bren Smith, uh, 
that I had met at these different events that we would go to. And uh, we both looked like fishermen, and no, so no one would even hang with us. We'd sit down and have a beer and talk about the real state of the ocean. And while we were talking, he had mentioned what he was doing with kelp, that you know he was doing 3D restoration farming in the ocean, and he was growing uh, mariculture bivalves, you know, mussels, clams, oysters, uh, scallops, along with his kelp. And uh, I said, you know, you're the future, Bren. I said, I'm still living in the present. I'm still making money. But when things crash, you know, I'll give you a shout. And so when we had those bad years, I gave him a call and went back east to see what he was doing. And here's the thing. Kelp can sequester carbon five to 20 times more than live in terrestrial forests. Bivalves can filter 40 to 60 gallons of water each per day. So one oyster farm can clean out an entire bay in an afternoon itself. And so when you think about, you know, the properties that kelp has, everything from 14 different vitamins to 10 times more calcium than milk, it has iodine, it has the omegas, uh, you can make 200 different food products at least or more. You can make biofuels, bioplastics, cosmetics. You can turn it into compost, fertilizer. They found that if you took animal feed and add 2% kelp and feed it to cows and pigs, it reduces our emissions by 50 to 60%. So kelp is the hemp of the sea. It, it's, it's one of those, those magical organisms that grows 18 to 24 inches a day. So if we do this right, not only can we restore the ocean, feed our people, and build a regenerative economy that we can be proud of, but we can be paid to watch kelp grow. Can you talk about why it's important for indigenous people to lead that industry? I think that for indigenous peoples, they have thousands and thousands of years of being the original guardians and stewards of not only the ocean, but the land. And so I want to get a jump on those blue-green energy jobs that indigenous peoples who have thousands of years in front of their villages, they are the ones who should get permitted closest to their villages so they don't have to travel long distances in the middle of winter. Because see, here's the thing. Fishing starts in May and ends in October. Kelping starts in October and ends in May. So we're out there in the coldest, darkest, stormiest parts of the year. So you don't want to be traveling three, four, five hours from home in the middle of winter in a boat that you don't even know if it's going to make it. You're going to want to do that close to home. So what I'm hoping is that when there is a plan for kelp and mariculture, that indigenous peoples are going to be able to get permitted close to their ancestral homes. And so they're gonna be able to do this industry safely. But I also look at it as the industry that got us here, that led to the demise of the ocean and the resources in the ocean, shouldn't be the ones who are rewarded with these jobs. You know, I really think that indigenous peoples are, are the ones who should lead and, and figure out how they're going to help each other. Like, like right now, you know, I feel that there should be structured funds started where you have tribes, you have villages, you have village corporations, you have regional corporations, and like Indian Collective, where you're actually, natives are helping native people. Then we can create these structured funds from everything from science to government funding to 
United Nations funding, BBB, EDA, USDA, universities, social impact investors, donors, traditional banks, cooperative banks. Uh, there's, you know, I just ran out of fingers. There, there's about a dozen different ways that you can pool this money together and create these structured funds and build an indigenous ocean farmer loan fund to help indigenous peoples get in. Because here's what the non-native people are gonna have to figure out too, is that you don't start making money in the kelp or mariculture industry until the third to the fifth year of operation. So if you go to a traditional bank and go get a loan, you're gonna to have to start paying that back within a month whether you're making money or not. And I can tell you right now that money's going out of your pocket, not into your pocket. Let me give an example. If I was to start a new fishery over there, I'd have to buy a boat, buy a permit, go get a net, and think like that fish and go catch it. In this industry, you don't have that luxury. You're gonna to have to be able to set it up so you have long-term low interest deferred loan payment programs in place that you don't have to start paying those loans back till you're actually starting to make money. And that's how these farmers are gonna be able to get a farm. Otherwise, they're gonna lose their farm trying to get a farm in the water. And so I just looked at you know, all the barriers to entry and I sat down with my family and friends and I started calling my native buddies and I said, okay, this is what I see. And I've read books about this, I've done my research. And you know, I don't know how we're going to do our own landscape analysis, our own site analysis. I don't know how we're gonna source our seed, how we're gonna dive for it, how we're gonna harvest it, how we're gonna cultivate it, how we're gonna deploy it, how we're gonna monitor it, and then how we're gonna harvest it in the spring. We need different types of boats and fishing boats because kelp, you have 20 to 30 minutes to figure out what you're gonna do with it when you pull it from the water, unlike a salmon where, or a seafood where you have like roughly an hour, maybe an hour and a half to figure out what to do. Kelp, you gotta move pretty quickly. So you gotta get it into a dark, cool space or RSW, refrigerated seawater. Then, you know, what about the processing and the value adding and the marketing and the transportation to the market and how we're gonna build, you know, the energy uh, system to power this new machinery. And so you really have to think it through, but see, it's an industry that's so brand new you know, we've certainly, as indigenous peoples, been enjoying it for thousands of years, but we haven't moved a million pounds to market or five million pounds or 10 million pounds. And so when you get to those kind of numbers, you're gonna to have to really think about how you're gonna process value out and dehydrate it and get it to the point where it makes sense and economically as well. So lots of barriers to still overcome in this industry. but. I'm excited about all of them. You know, I, I like a good challenge and a good adversary. And here's the interesting thing. Uh, worldwide, the kelp sales have gone from 9 billion to 15.6 billion in the last two and a half years since COVID broke out. So it's grown at 11% a year. And I would imagine that it'll hit 90 billion in world sales. Uh, in the next 20 to 30 years. And so I wanna figure out how to work with indigenous peoples so we can have a declaration of principles for the industry and have you know, stewardship and restoration and, and uh, repatriation you know, and, and ocean back. So t for me, kelp farming and uh, mariculture farming is just another way of land back, but on the ocean, it would be ocean back. Do you already have a sense of community coming together and starting to address these barriers that you've, you've named? Yeah, there's about probably 
two to three dozen tribes that have shown an interest in Alaska. We're the largest permitter in the state right now, so we are helping uh, indigenous peoples in Kodiak and Southeast and in Prince William Sound. And what we're trying to do is help them figure out the permitting process. And what I'm hoping is that the indigenous peoples will organize and start a, a native kelp cooperative to offset all of the expenses that I've listed and shared. Uh, everything from the permits to uh, you know, getting your landscape analysis to figure out what can grow where, to figuring out how you're going to get your farm in the water, how quickly are you going to be able to utilize the entire size of your farm. But what I'm hoping is that if we start a native kelp cooperative, we can figure out how to address the processing, how we can address the marketing, how we can address the transportation and the energy costs as well. Then I think at the same time, they need to start a native kelp Alliance, which would be a 501c4, to figure out how we can address the policy and the regulation and the legislation that I think needs to happen. Because this isn't an ideal industry, and I don't think it's really been well thought out, and there's certainly no plan in place yet. I think that indigenous peoples want to get into kelp farming for these three reasons in this order. For a restoration of the ocean first, for feeding their people a traditional food source that they've been enjoying for thousands of years second, and building a regenerative economy last to relocalize lost jobs stolen by the seafood industry. So if we do this right, then this is an opportunity to be a part of an emerging and fledgling industry that's actually good for the ocean, it's good for the people, it's good for the wildlife because there's about 300 critters that make a living in the wild kelp forest. And so wild kelp forests are disappearing around the planet. So we need to figure out how to get as much kelp in the water as we possibly can to take care of the ocean and, and, and feel good doing it every day. You know, I mean, like when I get on my boat, uh, I feel like I'm a part of a solution. You know, my whole team does. We feel like, you know, we're doing our part. It may not be going as fast as we would like or being as big as we would like. But at the same time, I think that the Native Kelp Alliance can also focus on programmatic permitting. So what we're doing is for restoration and science purposes, we should be getting 10 permits at once instead of just one at a time because of the time and the cost involved. If kelp can sequester carbon five to 20 times more than living terrestrial forests, then let's figure out how to leave it in the water longer to maximize the carbon sequestration. You know, how do we do carbon sinks and leave it in the water permanently or make products that are permanently sequestering carbon if we do pull it from the water. I want to figure out how to do direct seeding so we can get away from anchors, lines, and buoys. You know, and, and we can help restore the last of the wild kelp forest. And I want to figure out how we can build laboratories to grow climate change resilient species. I think that's equally as important. We should be making value-added finished products. We should have our own biorefineries. We should be doing our own finished byproducts here in the state and owning the entire chain. I don't want to be owned by industry or by the man anymore like I have as a fisherman for the last 150 years. I'm just not in the mood anymore. I think that a lot of indigenous peoples are not in the mood either. We need to be thinking differently, acting differently, and doing things differently if we're really serious about changing the way uh, that we're going down this rabbit hole on the planet. Because here's the thing. 
we're running out of time. But if we would wisen up and wake up and realize that we don't have to destroy the last of these finite resources, where if we do, we do it slower and turn that into products that are gonna last a long time that actually do good for the planet rather than just burning it in our vehicles and, and vessels. So what my hope is, is that when you know, we get our native brand and we get our, our native profits and we're able to uh, be a part of this new industry that people are gonna wanna buy our products and, and our goods because they're choosing to live a new way on the planet, not just because it tastes great or it looks great or it's packaged really well. You know, it's really about changing the way that we buy things. So I wanna scale up by scaling down I want to help communities figure out how they can change their relationship with their food sources and take care of their community first, feed their people, sell their excess, value add, figure out how to do things differently. And then they'll have a chance to survive and maybe even thrive during these climate changing times. And so, so I just feel like someone has to lead this damn revolution. And so why not be the one. Why not step up and say, okay, how about we think about doing it a different way? And that's all I'm trying to do. And anytime anybody does something new, uh, then everybody goes, well, why is he trying to do it that way? Well, wake up. You know, I mean, it, unfortunately, it took the nation's worst oil spill happening in my backyard in my lifetime for me to wake up. Everybody's going to have to wake up. And then they're just going to have to choose how they want to live. And, and I know for me, for my little daughter, Ananda, I wanna give her the opportunity to be able to go out on the ocean and see what uh, the kelp restoration is doing for all the critical critters and juvenile uh, salmon and herring and octopus and every other critter that makes a living in these kelp forests. And I feel that it's time for indigenous peoples to not only stand up and be heard, but it's time for them to lead again. Well, thank you for leading and thank you for taking the time to help people start to think differently and sharing your vision so that other folks can realize that it doesn't have to be status quo and it doesn't ha we don't have to just like be on a train track on a crash course and that the solutions can come from the community and opening the door for the community to see what a tactical solution is with kelp and kelp is super exciting and i'm so excited to watch the kelp industry grow in alaska and for indigenous people to lead it it's also really exciting. I didn't know until today that the kelp season is the opposite of salmon season. So you still can go to fish camp. <laughs> you still can go yeah. to fish camp in the summer and be, and be looking towards the future with kelp that is a symbiotic relationship with the salmon systems of Alaska. Yeah. You know, the last thing I'd like to say is that I miss fishing every day. You know, I started when I was five and staying in with my family. And then, you know, by the time I got in my teens, I was gill netting on the Delta and tendering, long lining, chasing herring. You know, I've done it all. I just remember every time I cut loose from the dock and untied my boat and took off, I was a different man. I was a different person. You know, I, I was full of optimism and hope. And as a fisherman, you, you got to be that way, right? Otherwise, I mean, you're the last one that wants to tell your crew that the fish aren't coming. And I think that that's what drives me is that optimism, because I've always believed in the planet and the ocean and what it can provide. And I've always felt like 
Alaska has been this place of bounty and beauty beyond belief. And so if we just figure out how to enjoy that, but do our part to restore it, then we may be okay. But it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of funding and a lot of energy. And so what I try and do is I direct energy, time, money, or love, whatever direction that I can to do the uh, most amount of good in the shortest amount of time. And I think that's why I've been successful in my life as an activist. But now I'm, I'm hoping that uh, we can figure out how to get a handle on saving our oceans and, and changing the path that we're on. Well, thank you, thank you for sitting down with us. Absolutely. And it go like this. It go left, left, right, right. Take it down, make it right. Baby, we gon' dance and spin. Go left, left, right, right. Take it down, make it right. Baby, we gon' dance and spin. It go left, left, right, right. Take it down, make it right. Baby, we gon' dance tonight. It go left. Lowdown Brass Band plus Dune, I am feeling stoked right now. But we are wrapping it up, so let's find another way to channel that energy. You are listening to Salmon Fest Radio, and you can find us online at salmonfestradio.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. You can uh, tune in and uh, explore the lore of this podcast that is now wrapping up with these bonus episodes. Our second season. And thank you, of course, to the organizations and the people that make Salmon Fest Radio. Thanks, of course, to our friends at KBBI for their technical support. Thank you to Salmon Fest for putting this whole gig together that allows us to come together and celebrate our favorite fish. We want to thank Cook and Lit Keeper for hosting this series and making this all possible. Thank you to Pastor Tim, who recorded Lowdown Brass Band live at Salmon Fest and gave us some nice mastered music for your listening pleasure. Thank you to our Salmon Champion, Dune Lankard. And of course, the Lowdown Brass Band for joining us and providing such great interviews and great music for this episode. And of course, our hardworking producer, director, researcher, technical wizard, Kira, who is here every week uh, helping us congeal this uh, so-called podcast. We couldn't do it without you. Stick around, everybody. Stay tuned. We'll be back again. You're listening to Salmon Salmon Fest Fest Radio. Radio.